We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley, my co-host, as usual, Joe Quinn. Hi there. This week we're speaking with Charles Bausman. He's the founder and editor of, editor-in-chief of Russia Insider, the news portal set up in September last year to counter some of this abysmal betrayal of Russia, portrayal, maybe it's betrayal as well, in the Western mainstream media. They're essentially tracking what's being reported in the West and sort of truthifying the narratives for the English-speaking audience. You've probably heard of it by now. In a short time, Russia Insider has already generated some 20 million page views. The site's continuing to grow rapidly. Charles and his team recently launched a Kickstarter crowdfunding appeal as they seek to expand to topics beyond Russia. So let's welcome Charles. Great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, we're big fans of your site. We've, uh, it's, it, i got to say, first thing, it's funny. You know? <laughs> It's obviously it's it's great to have someone else out there, you know, just countering some of the awful stuff that said about Russia, about Russians even, and of course about Putin and uh, his actions and policies. So it's <laughs> your major welcome addition to. Yeah, honestly, we just we just started this thing. It was just a handful of us uh, last summer who wanted to blow off some steam. We had no idea we'd get this kind of a response from readers um, and volunteers. And um, and so I think when you blow off steam, you also sometimes want to um, use humor, you know, to sort of ridicule the people who have gotten on your nerves for so long. Well, and um, and then we realized that it was a lot of fun, and we just made it, made it a point to keep humor in the mix as much as possible. And it seems to be really popular with readers. They like it. <laughs> well, absolutely, because I mean, how could you not make fun of the kind of stuff that's coming out of the out of the West? You know, for any rational-minded person who isn't, you know, completely inured in, in uh, you know, Western propaganda and the whole, like, the American or the Western dream. I mean, you just look at it coldly and, you know, kind of even partially, objectively. I mean, you can't help but just go, like, every time you see it, you can't help but go, what the hell, you know? I mean, one example, I mean, I don't want to get into this right now, but one example is, like, um, I think it was John Kerry last year talking about the Russian invasion of... Uh, of Crimea, and he made some reference to, and you know, you don't just go around invading other countries, you know. And him as a representative of the U.S., you yeah. know, on the back of uh, Iraq, it's Afghanistan, incredible. how he can come out and say that. But I wonder how he can say that. And and I mean, he obviously deluded himself. But uh, exactly. people listening to that, the probably the sad thing is, there's probably a lot of people in the U.S. listening to that who don't get the hypocrisy. You know, that's what bugs me. You know. Yeah, unless somebody were to point it out, but, uh, but but what that incident like shows me, and you see this again and again in the top ranks of of you know officialdom in the U.S. and in the EU, is incredible incompetence. It's like you know they're not that smart, and they repeatedly open themselves up to ridicule in so many ways that um, you'd think they'd be better at it, but it's almost like they 
gotten too comfortable and too complacent, and uh, it's, it's, it has all the signs of decay and sort of, you know, things starting to collapse. That when I see that kind of behavior at that level, mm-hmm. it's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is amazing, and that's why we're saying that you have to make fun of it. You can't not but make fun of it. I mean, you report on the facts. You say that it happened, but you got to throw in some humor there or some sarcasm, you know, because it's just asking for it, you know. But... Um, Charles, I just wanted to get a little bit into, you mentioned that you started the Russian Insider website. It's just, I'll just give the URL here, it's russia-insider.com. It's a great website, it's very accessible. It's kind of, it reminds me a little bit of, I don't know, it almost reminds me a little bit of of, of kind of the way RT but a lot of other websites actually, you know, style their websites in this way. Uh, It's very accessible. Uh, There's a lot of, uh, you know, all of the all of the titles and, and the subject headings are all very, very clear and very, pretty much in your face, available there, and it's, it's simple at the same time. But you said you started it last year. You and a group of friends just kind of started. Yeah, you know, time. none of us are journalists. Okay, that's really the first. Yeah, none of us are journalists. We're all guys from from business or law or um, uh, you know diplomacy, and um, uh, and I for the longest time have thought that the coverage of Russia was really unfair and that, I mean, but before the Ukraine crisis started, I mean, I've right. been working mm. on and off in Russia for many years and uh, I have a lot of friends who are journalists, um, sort of for the big name publications and we um, we would have these like raging arguments at dinner and I was like, you guys, you keep writing this stuff about Putin and it's just not true and you keep writing this stuff about Khodorkovsky and it's just not true and mm. on and on, right? And um, but it was always like a friendly sort of uh, disagreement, and it was we left it at that. But then when the Ukraine crisis broke out last summer, um, the 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 propaganda and the dishonesty went off the charts. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I found myself in a situation where you know I was living in a country where I knew Russians who had relatives there who were getting killed. Um, I, I I I understood very well that that like the most you know raging lies were being told about what was happening and it came to a point where i just felt i couldn't be quiet anymore Mm -hmm. i was like listen if i don't speak up and do something uh, i can't really respect myself so um so we got i got together with like literally three hundred guys and we're sort of like-minded on this and we thought about what to do and we thought well maybe we should buy one of those you know ads in the new york times which is a common practice in America. If you want to get an alternative view out, you can just buy an ad. Um, and we thought about different things, and we said, no, let's, why don't we put up a website and so we can sort of like sound off regularly and, and mention this stuff. And honestly, we thought it would be read by like 20 of our friends or 100 of our friends, and it would just be sort of this thing. And what happened was uh, people uh, discovered it on Facebook, and somebody started posting it into Facebook uh, Russia groups uh, that, that are sympathetic to Russia. And we started these volunteers and all these people writing us, encouraging us to do more and offering mm-hmm. to help. And it just became like this this online movement. I mean, that's really what it was. It's, uh, we've, we've put very little money into this. Um, and we've put all of it out of our own pockets, which are not deep. Um, and we... Um, it's really been built 90% by people who've shown up and said, I'd like to have and they're all over the world. Um, hard, actually, there's just like four or five people in Moscow now 
Um, and but there's 50 people all around the world who put this out uh, by just mostly contributing their free time. So, so it's a really interesting kind of journalism phenomenon. It's real citizen journalism. It's um, uh, it's user generated. It's very sort of it's not top down. It's a little bit chaotic. Um, I can't always control what goes on there. Sometimes I look at the headlines and I go, oh, no. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so that's um, yeah. that's what we're doing, and it's it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, we're kind of familiar with that model because we're also volunteer-based, and we've got people translating our material, contributing material from all over the world. Um, there are just a few of us who actually work together, so to speak, in the same space. But then it's kind of a it's kind of a, an international network, and that's what makes yeah. it a success. Mm. And, uh, yes. Yes. All power to you, you you have the faith in that model because it works. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear it's working for other people too. Yeah. It's fantastic. So, so I mean, you recently you started a, a what's it called, Kickstarter? Um, yeah. A, f- a fundraiser, basically, for... Um, crowdfunding, yeah. Crowdfunding, crowdfunding, yeah. And it's, uh, I'm just looking at it now on your website. It's doing pretty good. It's right there on the right-hand side of Russia Insider. Uh, where people can uh, donate uh, whatever they whatever they can just to support the, what you're doing basically, which is really important. Um, yeah. But uh, what what's your do you have any uh, <laughs> a bit like the, the U.S. Although for different reasons, do you have any expansionist plans uh, specific to um, you know some some particular area, or is it just to continue doing yeah. what you're doing? Yeah. Well, you know. Um um, what we realized, we're also sort of like a, our, our, our goal and our sort of mission is, is a work in progress, and it's constantly evolving. And we kind of have to figure out very quickly, well, where are we going with this and what's happening here? Mm. And um, we, uh, we realized that what we really wanted to focus on is media criticism and understanding how media malfunctions, dysfunctions, and gets as screwed up as it is today. Um, and so... We're really good at that as it concerns the Russia story because we're all Russia specialists and right. we can see where things are going haywire. Um, but we're also learning a lot of things about just how media works in general. And mm. what we think, well, well, why don't we apply that insight and that knowledge to other subjects that are being uh, poorly informed on by, by the media? And so we want to expand to U.S. foreign policy in general. Mm-hmm. The Middle East very much, and there's a big Russia angle in the Middle East. Right. So uh, we want to talk about that. Um, we want to talk about the NSA and this encroachment on and and the spying on citizens. Um, that isn't particularly a Russian story, except for Edward Snowden is somewhere here in Russia. <laughs> Nobody yeah. ever sees him. Right. Um, <laughs> um, and and then just sort of get into any kind of area of media failure and try and reform media and, and try and invent ways and think about ways to have media function better and be better protected against the, the weirdness and corruption that's, that's so widespread today. Hmm. Well, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent idea because, like you've said, it's um, what, what you've been focusing on largely in terms of uh, U.S. policy, uh, policies towards Russia. Um, those same policies have been are going on in other places around the world, the same kind of, uh, you know, attempts to kind of, you know, subvert 
kind of democracy or to interfere with the processes, the democratic or the political processes in inside countries. That, that's going on all around the world. So, I mean, you can make so many parallels to bolster the argument uh, of what the U.S. is doing and to show what the U.S. is doing in Russia. You could say, well, look, here's what they're doing in Venezuela. Here's what they're doing in the Middle East. Here's what they're doing in Asia, you know? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So there's there's just an unlimited amount to do. It really it depends on how much money we can raise and how many right. people volunteer. And it's interesting, you know, we're doing this Kickstarter campaign, and um, we're going to be running these campaigns continuously. Like, we don't see it as a one-time thing. We're going to just keep them going all year round on various platforms. Right. We think we could probably raise maybe two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 a year doing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're also talking to investors uh, to put in more money. Uh, and so, you know, we want to – we have a business background, and I guess that's a big advantage because we can think of this in terms of a sustainable business model and mm-hmm. building a media company, you know, that will survive and compete in in the contemporary media market. Well, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And right. uh, it's um, – I think it is – very, very much sustainable, particularly at this point in time and in history, because there's so much going on, and even people who are usually asleep to to politics or or what's going on in the world are are being uh, their consciousness is being invaded a little bit just because of the extent of the kind of craziness and chaos going on around the world. So there's more and more people, or more than ever maybe, people today who are looking for are looking at what's going on and, and looking for answers. And uh, yeah. so, I mean, it's definitely sustainable in that sense because the the the, the interest in, in information from so many people is uh, is really at a high level. And I mean, I was thinking that generate uh, more funds and um, <coughs> uh, to, to, to further what you're doing. I mean, you could get people. Obviously, those kind of funds would, get, would go to getting people maybe on the ground, you know, uh, outside broadcast kind of uh, or reporters on the ground getting their own information, um, you know, from various different areas. And that obviously costs money to send people around the world and have the cam- not cameras, but, you know, eat movies and cameras, you know. Sure. You know, sure. so all of that t- does take money, but it's, um, but having your own unique reports, you know, your own um yeah, information from <clears throat> not just uh, pulling it from the web uh, or, or yeah. pulling it from other sources, but generating it yourself is uh, is really valuable because you yeah. can get your own unique perspective on it. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and we, you know, we do generate a lot of our content um, we uh, from from contributors. They're all contributors, right? But they like twenty percent of our content is original and. If you look at in terms of page views, it's probably closer to 40% because those hmm. are the articles that are, tend to be the most popular, um, which is kind of interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I mentioned the crowdfunding, and what's, what, what I've realized is as important and as valuable as the crowdfunding is a different kind of drive that we're doing on the site, which is trying to bring in volunteers. And I finally got a great volunteer coordinator in place about a month ago, and so we, we put out a headline saying, you know, call for volunteers and listed all the things that we wanted to do. A hundred people wrote us. A hundred oh. people. Mm. I was completely bowled over. I was mm-hmm. like, wow, it would cost a lot of money to, you know, we'll probably be able to use maybe 20% of them. Mm. But it would cost a lot of money to hire 20 people, right? right? So in a way, that's, that's as valuable in terms of a money value mm-hmm. as uh, money we can raise uh, from other sources. So it's a really important part of what we're doing is, mm. is 
that too, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's an interesting comment you made that the people are drawn to original content. I think because they want, while they're they, they're happy to see criticism of the media, the original content, of course, that's put out by Western media. What they want to see is the analysis of it. Mm-hmm. They want to see it yeah. taken down and what is there instead, what's really going on instead. And you, you've got it on your Kickstarter page. You like to distribute things evenly between media criticism, which you're kind of focused on now, and investigative reporting, which yeah. takes time and resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we know some fantastic – another thing that we've, we've acquired, we, we've existed for only six months, really – we launched the the website in on September September 20th of last fall um, and uh, but one thing we realized is that there's a great network of fantastic investigative journalists out there um, many of whom are underemployed or not very well paid yeah um, many of whom who were working on really important uh, stories and they were kind of squeezed out of their news organizations because the news organizations didn't want to cover that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got this wonderful network of great people. Many of them are experienced journalists, you know, really actually some of them very well known. And we can, uh, uh, we can activate these people and get material out of them for much more inexpensively than, than the main, the big uh, media companies. We're so much more efficient and so much um, – you know, uh, just we've got a very flat management structure, very little overhead, mm. very little office space. Everybody kind of works off their own equipment. I mean, we can we can do an amazing amount with, you know, tens and tens times less than what's spent at the BBC and places like that. Yeah, absolutely. Because and those kind of people you're talking about are are kind of gold in a certain sense. Because uh, for I'd say for most of them. Um, you know they're not looking. They're not, they're not in it for for money. Uh, they obviously they need money to keep body and soul together, type thing, and uh, a roof over their heads. But I mean, their main motivation is to write and tell the truth about certain things. You know, so that's yeah. where their drive comes from. So they're compared to people like in in the wash and in the Western media and the big newspapers and stuff. I mean, they're all getting you know six figure salaries for just spouting the party line, basically. You know, you could almost get a computer exactly. to, computer to produce what they produce. You know. Or just yeah, ask, the, yeah. ask the State Department or Jen Psaki, you know, she'll write it for him. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned um, uh, like the h- historical situation and uh, that things seem to be getting really sort of out of kilter. Um, and I, I, I was, I have a good analogy for you in terms of history because I studied history at university and, uh, and when, I'm, when I think about, well, what does is, what is this sort of remind me of? Um, you know, I think it's very similar to... Uh, what Europe was like on the eve of the Reformation, right. uh, uh, when the Catholic Church, which basically ran everything, became so hopelessly corrupt that you know a lot of people were aware of it and and uh, and were unhappy with it, but nobody was really speaking up, and it just got to a breaking point uh, so that you know it was enough for one monk to to stand up and say no. And the whole thing came crashing down on top of itself within a matter of years. Um, and that collapse in Europe is like if you could compare that to the collapse of a major contemporary empire like a, like the Soviet Union or, mm-hmm. 
uh, Eastern Bloc. And, um, uh, you know, I kind of have this feeling that I, there's, there's this, 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 like this sense of rotten corruption in the air that's gotten so extreme that I think something similar might happen uh, with the world that we live in today. And well, the, the more extreme the lies and the sort of craziness gets in the media, it's just like a barometer of, you know, an impending end of a rotten system. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's definitely a feeling we get as well. The more shrill they get, the, 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 higher, the higher the fall, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, they you know, the, as soon as it's the Americans, for example, or this kind of Anglo-American empire, whatever you want to call it, that's been around for so long, um, as soon as they, they meet their, uh, the first bit of resistance, you know, they push back very strongly and they try and, and shut it down. But if that, um, in this case, Russia, for example, uh, if that, uh, uh, that, that opposition doesn't fall as, as easily as, it, as other oppositions have fallen in the past or the, or the, the empire can't just kind of, you know, make it shut up or destroy it or buy it off. <clears throat> well, then, you know, they, they start to get, uh, they start to get something they haven't, they haven't really experienced before, you know, someone who can stand up and give as good as they're getting type thing. And yeah. the, the, the Americans are, are in a really difficult position because, like you just said, the, their entire edifice is built on so much corruption and lies. It's just yeah. so easy to pull it down, and they're desperate to silence any uh, exposure of, of the, that corruption and lies that it's built on. And uh, But... I mean, how do you stop that from happening when, you, when you're sitting basically on a giant pile of shit for your <laughs> empire? How do you stop people from pointing out and saying, you're all full of shit, basically? You yeah, know you're I mean? sitting on a pile of shit, basically. It's self-evident. Yeah, right. <laughs> self-evident, and you can't do anything about it. So they get more and more extreme in their, and more and more ridiculous, really, in their, in their counter-claims, etc., and they're their own undoing, because you can only take that, that so far before people just go... Even the stupidest person is going to go, you know, really? We don't believe you anymore, really, you know? Yeah, I mean, and you know, you know in, in, um, in Europe, on the eve of the Reformation, you could find a lot of extremely intelligent people who had the best educations available in the day, who, you know, were powerful and had influence and were respected in society, and they would, uh, they would prepare to argue very, very convincingly that... Um, you know, the sale of indulgences is a perfectly good way to run a religion. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's just all these sort of officials and academics who defend the current system and how it works. You know, they're wrong. Just because they're, they have these fancy degrees and high positions doesn't mean that they're not spouting total nonsense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a, definitely a pattern to history here. That we're seeing unfold. Um, I'd like to ask you about, um, well, the first question about, hopefully not you personally, but has Russia inside, insider, um, been accused of being Kremlin propagandist yet? Have you? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. We get that all the time, especially in America, because in America, people, I think they're the most. They might be the most. Well, they're more. Brave brainwashed than the Europeans, I think just because it's a factor of distance and history and all kinds of things. And um, people are really timid in America. Wow. And even the ones who are critical of, you know, Russian policy, sort of the liberals, liberals in America, um, they've been a little bit careful about us. Like, I don't know, we don't want to sort of be associated with these people. They seem kind of like, you know, radical bomb throwers. And... Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, they're probably getting paid by somebody in the Kremlin or something like that. And, um, yeah, so we get that a lot, get yeah. that a lot. And the way you could almost understand why, because there is Kremlin-funded propaganda out there and all sorts of things, and, and the Russians have been very aggressive, actually, in the cyber propaganda thing, you know, the the artificial tweet storms and uh, all these sorts of things. And the reason they're aggressive with it is that they're really good at it. I mean, it's a, mm-hmm. it's an incredibly technologically advanced country, and it's one of the resources they have to fight back, so they use it a lot. So anyway, um, but, you know, that impression of us being paid by the state, like, uh, dissolves pretty quickly when somebody, uh, that's if they don't know us well, and they just sort of have a first impression like that. But if they go onto the site, they start reading about all the details about all the people who work there, um, uh, they see a couple of interviews with me on TV or things like that, uh, and I explain, look, I'm just a regular guy. Honestly, I was just working here as an American businessman, mm. and I just decided to do this. It's really convincing, and so most people are like, "Yeah, these guys aren't propagandists." Oh, um, exactly. I mean, you, your, <laughs> your credentials, your background in finance, and uh, coming there as an American and living in Russia, and the rest of your team as well. I mean, you're expats. Yeah. You're, you're the least likely people to be <laughs> spouting Kremlin anti-Western propaganda and quotes just because yeah. you know of, of who you are and. Uh, well, like, well, hang on a minute. They could be, they could be double agents, you know, or, or just they could be American agents working for the CIA inside Russia, you know, posing as genuine, as genuine, critics. yeah, as, as critics, just to. Uh, but in that case, that would say that all the Americans should read Russia Insider because in, <laughs> inside there's the, inside there's the truth about what's really going on inside Russia if they really dig for it. Yeah, I would, I would promote, say about I would that. Here's that to say. people, you know. If people if, want to believe that, go ahead. If we're Kremlin prayed propagandists, then I think we all deserve an Academy Award this year. Yeah. Because nobody has ever acted as well as we've acted for faking it. That's all I'd say on that subject. <laughs> yeah. And on the other, on the on the other hand, if you're if you're working for you know U.S. intelligence, then you're doing a really bad job. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've seen the miss. You've missed a memo there about. What you're meant to be meant to be promoting, you know, about Russia. Russia's evil. Oh, you're not meant to be telling everybody that America. Is what evil. happened was the Kremlin turned them. <laughs> exactly, they're turned. It gets a bit complicated at that point. I would just say, just read the information and decide for yourself. You know, based yeah. on your own ability to, you know, weigh up, you know, right and wrong, and what makes sense and what doesn't. That's, that's yeah. what everybody should do. You know, but um, well, this, this criticism, you know, oh, they're just running propagandists. I want to bring that out to a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious trying to watch them frame the Putin slash Russian ideology. So he's attacked for being a Hitler. He's attacked mm-hmm. for being a Stalin. He's attacked for being a this and that. You go extremes left and right and all over the place. But you've been in Russia during a time when it is essentially a capitalist, democratic country in the globalization with other countries. It's open. This that that comparison can't be made. And it's absurd the kind of pejorative projections they put onto a Russia that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they just—they've got so much invested in demonizing this guy. They'll just go to any limits. But you know, it, it shows you if, if your audience is very unsophisticated, which is what the audience is in many ways in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you can, you can make those kinds of allegations and, and parallels and people mm. will say, you know, I guess so. There's also, you know, what I've realized about this, this is part of our kind of media 
criticism experience, an insight that we've had recently is it's about the cumulative lie, right? You don't, uh, you can't go from saying Putin is a decent man to to saying he's like Hitler overnight. You kind of have to build it up over years. You kind of say first he mm-hmm. murdered this journalist, then he mm-hmm. unfairly treated that oligarch, then he you know mm-hmm. blew up an apartment building, then he invaded uh, Georgia, then he and so you sort of you have this sort of tapestry of lies going back many years, and people who don't pay much attention to Russia have heard this on and on and on, that Putin's done all these mean, nasty things. So then you can come out with the, the final sort of thing and say, in fact, he is the modern Hitler. Mm. And people are kind of, they're already sort of been... Primed. Yeah, kind of uh, trained to think that that's probably what he is, right? Because mm-hmm. he did all those terrible things. And it's really interesting. I go back like four or five times a year and I go, you know, I socialize with people and I and meet friends and go to parties and people tell me these things all the time and they, they absolutely believe them. They believe that Mr. Hardokovsky is, uh, you know, a really good sort of democratic mm. uh, hero and was, you know, unfairly thrown into jail and they believe that Putin poisoned that um, secret agent in, in London with the uh, uh, radiation po- poisoning, right. and on and on and on. And these are all untrue. Mm-hmm. They're just untrue. I mean, these are manufactured accusations that don't have any proof behind them. So it's interesting. cumulative lies, the mm-hmm. cumulative long-term lie that's very effective. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's, been, and it's interesting because they built it up, over, as you say, over, over several years. It kind of started around the Litvinenko uh, uh, murder, I think it was 2006, but even maybe there was another journalist that was supposedly killed by Putin himself. He pulled the trigger type thing. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, there's there's plenty of evidence that that's just nonsense, despite what this guy Litvinenko said himself. Uh, despite what he's, yeah. he's alleged to have said, there's other things that he said that make it uh, kind of clear that those two guys that are accused of being agents, FSB agents who killed him, he couldn't have been responsible, you know. Um, I've actually written a little bit about that recently. But um, uh, people in the West, the impression I get that people, in, particularly in the U.S., but also in Europe, some of the kind of um, American files in, uh, in in Europe, they they just can't. Uh, they have this dream, this image of of the system of government that they live under and that it's so wonderfully democratic and open and it's the power of the people and the people decide and, and they get this message from Russia that it's kind of like it's an autocracy, it's basically almost like a dictatorship with Putin and and, mm-hmm. and, and that, that challenges their own sense of kind of self-worth or their own uh, good feelings about the, themselves and the system they live under yeah. and they live under, under democratic countries or, or in, in democratic countries and they can't... Um, they just want – it's kind of like what the State Department tries to convince them. It's, it's uh, the U.S. State Department. They want to give uh, these poor oppressed people in Russia and elsewhere around the world the freedom that they have. I, I feel so good about the country I live in and my, my, I want that to have – I want other people in the world to have that. And if there's one person who's stopping that, then it's terrible. But it's so diluted, you know, because, I mean, I think the Russian government itself admits that uh, – or it's officially listed as a kind of limited democracy – you know, where technically you have you have democracy, you have uh, at certain levels, but at the level of uh, the president or the, the cabinet or the, the government, basically they're the ones who are elected, but then they decide, and it's not the people can't come along and say we don't like that decision you made. 
to every single point. We're going to question it, and we're the ones who are going to decide. That, that, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in the West either. I mean, I mean, Americans get Democrat or Republican, Democrat or Republican who follow the same policy decade after decade, you know, and they can elect sure. different faces and different people with different hairstyles and stuff who say different things. But when it comes down to actually deciding a policy, it's the U.S. government and the, the executive and, the, and, you know, the Congress, some of them anyway, they're the ones who decide and the people don't get to question those. And so it's exactly right. the same situation in, in Russia uh, as it is in the U.S. Because Americans have this idea of the American dream, and it is a dream, literally, uh, mm-hmm. that they think that they live in a fantasy land, basically. You know, it's just uh, it's incredible. But like you said, they're not very sophisticated, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on everything you just said. It's, it's absolutely true. Well, I was just going to ask you something about inside... Uh, just kind of on that point, what's your feeling, since you spend a lot of time in, in Moscow and, and Russia, um, what is it that you get from yeah. people in Russia about all of this Western propaganda? Does anybody believe it? Um, are they wise to it? Are they it's basically? Actually, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Uh, you have uh, a wing of Russian society which tends to be sort of the more... Um, sort of uh, the more educated people, uh, intelligentsia, what they call the intelligentsia here, um, um, creative people, um, progressive people, people who you'd call very liberal in their values in the West, sort of the equivalent of liberals. And they are very uh, against Putin. They are just willing to go to extremes sometimes to achieve some things. And um, and then you've got the the, the main pro say they said well we're maybe not know the details but we basically think these people are okay and we support them and then you have like the strong twenty or thirty those are very small there may be a five percent of the population and in general and so there's a very lively debate in Russia you know because uh, there is a lot of public debate and the uh, it allows for a lot, but the whole Russian internet is there's a huge public discussion, and um, and it's of a very high level. I mean, that's one thing I have to say. Uh, for all their uh, pluses and minuses, uh, Russians are very well educated and they're very <clears throat> widely read, and I would say they're much more open-minded and sort of oftentimes better informed than people in the West. There's less. Uh, structures here to sort of, you know, keep them in the boundaries of certain things that are acceptable to think about or discuss. So uh, sometimes you have these debate shows on on the evening, sort of political talk shows that are just extraordinary, you know, with really, really brilliant people going on uh, about the most fascinating things at an extremely high level. And it's just head and shoulders above what you would find in the United States, um, mm-hmm. you know shows mm-hmm. and I think that's that's a really interesting sort of thing that I, I think people don't realize about Russia and what's going on here so in fact we could uh, say they have more freedom of speech in Russia than you know in the West they have, they have, they've got freedom of thought mm-hmm. because uh-huh. I think I think in, in, in the West you've got this sort of deadening effect of uh, political correctness um, and uh, and sort of everything's muffled somehow. It 
seems muffled when you watch American TV. Like, you know, they're just sort of dancing around a pretty narrow set of issues. And in Russia, it's much more wide open. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because freedom of speech, obviously, what what uh, what goes in, what 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 precedes freedom of speech is freedom of thought, or the ability, not just freedom of thought, but the ability to think and 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 then to speak on a wide, broad range of topics and understand mm-hmm. things. But for that to happen, you have to have the the in, incoming range of information, information which information. suggested it's higher yeah. quality in which, Russia. Right. Which I'll, I'll give you guys related. an example. I'll give you guys an example. You know, do you know, are you familiar with the website Zero Hedge? Yeah. 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 And, you know, it, it, it has a lot of people on there who are like, talking about how uh, gold is the only solution to things and mm. the whole financial system is a Ponzi scheme and uh, and sort of this, what would be considered like an alternative view in the United States and sort of a narrow view. In Russia, those kinds of ideas are discussed mainstream, okay? The right. biggest, most respected uh, academic uh, personalities in the country talk about this a lot and uh, talk about the world financial system in these terms a lot. And it's considered not fringy, but kind of like intelligent to sort of think about these things and think how important they are. So, you know, that's an example of a different... I think there's there's more willingness of more people to sort of go outside some boundaries here and consider things that, um, that aren't really taken seriously by the mainstream in the West. I think it's uh, it's obviously in the interest of the Russian government for people to be that way as well, to be well informed, because you're talking about two sides of, uh, two opposites here really, or two sides of a coin, um, in, the, in that the US uh, for a long time has been the kind of uh, the expansionist, uh, you know, the prime or the, the leading expansionist power in the world that has gone around the world kind of using all sorts of corrupt and, and devious and warlike um, or warmongering uh, activities to suppress democracy and to, to make the world free, essentially, for American corporations and for America to continue to dominate the world. Mm. And um, for that to happen, obviously, it's, it's wrong and it's anti-democratic, but for people in the U.S. to go along with that, they have to be kept in the dark about it. But the countries on the receiving end of that the governments of those countries that receive that kind of aggression, they are protected by a, a very well-informed population. So it's in their interest to just put as much information out there as possible and have a very well-informed and educated population. So it's, it's yes, interesting. Yes, that's an interesting point. Yeah, that's interesting. It's in their interest to have a well-informed citizenry. Yeah, because yeah. that's because when it comes to the day of, of a coup, for example, a Western-backed coup in Russia. Uh, people won't just roll over and believe the bullshit lies from the U.S. about freedom and democracy. They've, they, they're mm-hmm. aware of the history of the past 10 or 15 years about the U.S. spreading freedom and democracy in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's all just lies. Well, they're much yeah. less likely to accept it in their own country when they're aware of that, but you take the average American and they still think that Iraq was given freedom by America. They still actually yeah. think, still yeah. think Afghanistan was given freedom Yeah. You know, um, I would say that the Russians, and I noticed this in Eastern Europe too, as opposed to Western Europe, like Eastern Germans, for example, are more this way than Western Germans, right. is they've got a higher sort of bullshit detector uh-huh. ability um, because they lived under a very stifling system which um, had very extreme sort of propaganda uh, and, 
and twisting of information. So when they see it happening, they're like, oh, I've seen this. I remember this was, you know, this is what it was like 20 years ago in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So they're more resistant to this, whereas Americans, it's like, um, it's almost like like the the Europeans and the Russians have been to live with this stuff for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, And they know very well what it looks like and smells like. But Americans are kind of like, you know, they've lost the immune system for this. They've been living in this sort of weird world for so long that they don't recognize it. It's like um, that boiling frog uh, analogy. They've sort of slowly, slowly slipped into this kind of sleepiness about information. Yeah, the the term inoculation is a very interesting one. From Certainly from our perspective, we, we published a book called Political Pony written by a guy and, in fact, a group of people who were in the East Soviet bloc of Eastern Europe, 1930s and 40s, and they started to understand and develop ideas about how the system will work to keep them. In terms of information, the information the people are lacking, the extent to which it exists, and particularly how psychopaths and other characters to disturb people will rise to the top in any given and gradually yeah. take it affect the entire town. I think in a sense, Russians and Eastern Europeans, to use your analogy, are inoculated because they have a visceral memory of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think psychopaths rise to power in all over the world as much as anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I, think, I think it's a fascinating concept, and I think I'm so glad it's sort of gaining traction and getting out there, that there might be something fundamentally wrong with a meritocracy. Because if the meritocracy keeps pushing forward people who are hell-bent on, you know, power at any cost, it'll attract people who are... Um, who Not are, fish for power. Yeah. Well, who are willing yeah, to, yeah. To, willing so to do be... anything to get that power. Anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's a, fa- it's a fascinating argument. Speaking of Germany in general, you you are fluent in German, and I've yeah. heard you, I've heard you on the record saying that you you track the kind of narratives going on in the German media, and, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. and that you think it's worse there than in the U.S. in terms of how anti Oh yeah, it's absolutely. It's just it's it's it verges on ridiculous. I don't know if in, you guys are in the U.K. We're in France right now, actually. Oh, okay. Because, um, you know, in America, you, they used to have these comedy shows about World War II sort of things like Hogan's Heroes. Um, and basically, they were sort of sitcoms of World War II era German and really silly. I mean, they're just like, just really, really uh, ridiculous. And, you know, uh, the German media is is in the tightest straitjacket of all. I mean, it's really, really, really tightly controlled. And it's definitely, I mean, there's no question that that's, it's, it's monitored, it's controlled and manipulated by the German and American t- intelligence services. Right. Um, and, uh, and that some of these guys are just literally paid agents. I mean, there's no way other way to explain their behavior. And they, uh, and when, and, and this goes back to, post-World War II history when the Americans were, were worried about the resurgence of perhaps Nazism or, or uh, sympathy with communism. So they they set up a very tight system to control and manipulate the German media. Um, and then 
that sort of just hung on as a leg through the 60s and 70s and into this century, um, and it still exists. And it has like a bureaucratic inertia, you know, Mm -hmm. and there are just people who have made their careers in that system, and they've got certain vested interests, and they've brought in people who sort of think the way they do, and it's sort of it's a thing that can continue for decades and decades, rooted out, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's very much in place in Germany, and when the Ukraine crisis hit, um, the um, the uh, the propaganda—it's almost like they got an order from headquarters, mm-hmm. like we have to do anything we can. Uh, to keep Germans on on the American side, because if Germany turns, we've lost it basically, yeah. you know. And so they really ramped up the propaganda, and um, it got a little bit silly. And the Germans were like, "Well, we'd, we're not going to put up with this anymore. This is ridiculous." And there's like this massive movement now in Germany um, to um, uh, that's very very critical of the media, and it's. It's a fascinating story, and it's going totally unreported in the West. This is what's so interesting. You know, uh, the, I, 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 we were writing about this, and um, I searched the Western media for information about this, and there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. It's just not in the New York Times, not in any of the other things. What was the name of that damn German journalist who recently right, yeah. wrote a book, and he said yeah. basically, yeah. The CIA gives orders, the and the entire media structure in Germany. Yeah, he answers. He was saying that he uh, that he works in his video. I think it was a video on um, on press TV, maybe RT or RT. I think it might have been I'm RT. Back, I'm back here. Yeah, yeah back. Charles, we were just mentioning there um, about there was a German. It was maybe last year sometime. A German uh, journalist gave an interview. I think it might have been RT, um, where he basically said that yeah, you know. He feels bad about the fact he, he feels he needs to come out now and say that uh, uh, working in German media for, for a long time, he basically worked for the CIA. He was given his orders about what to write from the Americans. Do you remember that guy? I can't remember his name oh, right absolutely. now. absolutely. Yeah, his name is Udo Ulfkotte. That's yeah, right, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, there are three books like that. Uh, his was the first, and then he's been followed by two more, and they're all bestsellers. Oh, wow. And all these German, these German journalists are coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, uh, this is actually a really screwy system. And, um, yeah, it's a fascinating thing. And I, mm-hmm. and I was saying it's, it's, it's so underreported and it's so massively important because mm-hmm. Germany is such a juggernaut in Europe. It's sort mm-hmm. of emerged as this, like, sort of dominating force. I mean, mm-hmm. especially in the last five years as the economic crisis has sort of lowered the position of the countries around Germany, and Germany has actually risen because they're managing still to export a lot. Um, you know, I tell you, uh, the, the, it's, it's, it's so important what happens there. What the German public opinion uh, believes and supports mm. is just becoming more and more critical all the time, and, um, and it's turning. It's really turning against the U.S., and that's mm. a fascinating sort of, you know, geopolitical shift of historic proportions and big news, and mm-hmm. people aren't writing about it. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, except for us, Russian insiders covering the story from top Right, yeah. You can... <laughs> it's, um, to be honest, the whole thing, the whole situation with, with Russia over the past year, largely, or, or a little bit before, has kind of opened my eyes and made me think about uh, history, the history of the past 
past 100 or more years in a very different way, you know. And the more I've looked at it, and I look, I, I go back to, for example, um, the beginning of the 20th century, you know, and um, the, uh, the what was going on then in the U.S. Uh, as far as um, Europe and Russia was concerned. Uh, obviously, the First World War, um, the Bolshevik Revolution, and then the Second World War, and on and on into the Cold War. And I look at all that, and I see a kind of I start to see, or I think I see that at least for those hundred years, American foreign policy, a lot of it has been dedicated to, particularly that foreign policy on on Europe, on the European landmass, or on the Eurasian landmass, has all been designed or been um, followed with the goal of uh, kind of neutralizing Russia, keeping Russia uh, contained, contained and down, essentially, you know, because I yeah. think way back then, like using the idea of the grand chessboard and this idea of geopolitics, and what's geopolitics? It's it's the politics to do with kind of geography, essentially, land masses and, and, and resources, uh, human and, and natural resources on those land masses. And, I mean, you have all these Americans who decamped from Europe a couple hundred years ago over to or all these Europeans who decamped from Europe over to America and set up their, their their center of empire, essentially. And from there, they decided they were going to control the world. And the first place they look is Eurasia, that entire landmass, which is by far the most people and most, most natural resources. And then you see yeah. Russia, this massive country that uh, on that landmass, and they look and they say, if we don't control this whole area, and particularly Russia, as one big country, by far the biggest country in the, in the world, and obviously in that landmass, if we don't control them, we don't control the world. I mean, that area, uh, Eurasia will control the world. <clears throat> that's the center, that's the, you know? That's the Eurasianist uh, theory. Yeah, it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Eurasia right? controls the world, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, it's a very popular theory these days in Russia. Mm. Well, it seems to make sense, you know, because what everything yeah. they've done, I mean, there's... People quibble over, you know, I mean, there's evidence from one guy anyway, a professor, he's now dead, uh, uh, Sutton, um, Anthony Sutton, Anthony Sutton, who talks about mm-hmm. the Wall Street financing of the Bolshevik Revolution and even of, of, mm-hmm. of Hitler to some extent. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you, you look at what happened with the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, you, you had the more or less the destruction uh, of, of, of Russian industry, you know, and the collapse of the whole system of the Tsarist system, you know. Um, and, and that Zara system at the time was uh, was a kind of world leader in terms of actual real life democracy and, and people's rights and, and of industry. It was it was a real power and perhaps the preeminent power at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, and then it suddenly the whole thing gets destroyed, and uh, and you have this gaggle of nut jobs who come in and lead this ridiculous uh, you know nihilistic revolution in Russia that just neutralizes Russia effectively, you know, even though it was built up then afterwards. But then you have the Cold War imposed and and the segregation. And through all of that whole 20th century, you have the U.S., the Anglo-American Empire, going going from strength to strength and dominating the world and Russia contained, you know. So I just look at it and I say, if that's what happened, then maybe that's what was planned to some extent, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it continues to Um, be. Yeah, yeah, I think... uh there is a degree of truth to that. I remember when we were studying uh, international relations in university, we were always taught that England always played this game of, of playing off uh, different powers in Europe against each other, mm. uh, and that they 
they'd always try and get them to fight each other, and then they'd take the side of whoever was losing, you know, and just <laughs> always keep these people at each other's throats so that mm. nobody would threaten England. Um, and I, I think America, perhaps, yeah, I think they pursue a similar policy. Yeah, they inherited it from the British, you know. To remind our listeners uh, that Russia Insider is an awesome website. We've been following it since it started up. Are you going to be setting up, as uh, as you mentioned on your Kickstarter page, you're going to be a non-profit registered in yeah. the U.S.? Yeah, That's yeah, fine. yeah. We want to we want to do that because you know, I, um, as an American, I'm very familiar with this. But the, the, uh, there's fantastic tax uh, incentives for uh, charitable giving in the U.S. You see a lot of uh, the news businesses gone, you know, completely into the red. Almost nobody can exist uh, on a commercial basis. And so a lot of American news organizations are shifting to nonprofit status and relying on donations to survive. Um, and so uh, the U.S. Is, is a great environment to do that in. And so that's what we're planning to do. And it's also a big, wealthy country with a lot of people who can make charitable donations. So um, we're in the process of doing that. It makes sense. Part of the hunger for, although we've discussed how in the U.S. You know, people are less sophisticated to this stuff, there is still mm-hmm. a lot of people in America who are, are sick of what they're hearing, and they are looking for alternatives. But to put it in cold terms, there is a market for it. What I want to get across to your listeners is if you're sympathetic to this kind of thing, um, the way this crowdfunding works is that the more people uh, – uh, pile in at the beginning, the more successful the campaign is. It works on the principle of of crowd psychology. People Mm -hmm. are more willing to contribute to and join a crowd if there are more people in it. So um, I'm just telling everybody I know in every public venue possible, look, it's not about the money, okay? I don't care if you donate a dollar um, or, or half a dollar. Just come and put your name on the site, give whatever you can, no matter how little, mm-hmm. because if people see that a couple thousand people supported this thing, that's as impressive as the amount of money that's been collected. And um, and it's really voting with your with your voice and your 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 you know, your your presence in a certain thing and it sends a big message. So um, I would encourage you if you're sympathetic and you think we're doing good stuff, don't wait until the end. Do it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't worry about if it's not much money. It's not about the money. It's about people getting behind something. Right, absolutely. We would fully endorse that yeah. just for our listeners just to go and, you know, whatever whatever they can because it's, you know, with putting your money where your mouth is type of thing, if you support this thing, and Russian Insider very much is in line with the kind of uh, analysis or the angle that, that we thought that net take. So, I mean, it's just another way to support the general overall um, movement essentially to tell the truth in this world and to get the truth out there among, uh, to, the, to as many people as possible. So, you know, commit your, even if it's only a few dollars or something, you're committing, mm-hmm. uh, psychologically you're committing yourself to it and you're showing that, you know, you're putting your money where your mouth is basically, you know, and that's important. Too. Yeah, you know, we're getting about 100 people a day to uh, sign up and we're running for 40 days. Well, you know, if we can keep it up or even increase that, that's 4,000 people. Right. And that says something, you know, that's not insignificant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Charles, I just wanted, to, I just wanted to ask you something. Since you're in Moscow, do you ever get contacted by anybody from, do you have any insight sources? Do you, maybe you're not allowed to tell us, but, you know, since you're maybe not far from the Kremlin, do you ever get any, or have you had an, an idea that someone who contacted you was maybe, uh, you know, had... Extra specially, inform- extra, extra specially interesting information to impart? 
Um, no, no. no I, yeah, because, you know, we just don't do that. We're not, we're not like doing uh, investigative stuff here on right. the ground in Russia. Our guys are all over the world, really. Mm. Um, and um, uh, we're more in sort of this, the, the organizational side of it, a couple of guys who are here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, and I think people who um, do have this sort of access. I bet you I've met some people who are very close to the Kremlin, mm. uh, but uh, they would never admit it. Right. Because as soon as they start talking about it, they're no longer close. So. Right. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the way it works. Well, this this is the information war, so yeah, people, get engaged. Um, help Charles and the project out. Russia Insider's doing a great job. Yep, absolutely. And um, yeah, we, we wish you all the best, Charles, and um, yeah, thanks a million for talking to us. Thank you very much. And okay. more po- more I really parties. enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was it was, a, it was great fun. Thanks. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Well, so that was Charles. He was a very interesting guest. Um, it was good to see Bush Insider doing uh, doing a good job. Basically, there yeah. needs to be more of. Uh, more websites like Russian Insider and Flat.net, uh, obviously, but um, there really aren't enough, you know. When you compare, when you consider uh, what what we're up against, basically the opposition, let's say. Um, yeah, it's uh, vast armies of there connected people. Right. I mean, even just small publications, just online websites, say about the size of Russian Insider. Right. On the other side, so to speak. Yeah. And there's a multiple in, in the English language in yeah. each country, in yeah. Eastern Europe. Um, all of them getting big backing, usually from some kind of open society mm-hmm. network or something. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also a lot of just genuine ideologues in the US, you know, um, that uh, genuine, genuine ideologues in the US who are just totally. They've been weaned or brought up on uh, on propaganda, on Western propaganda, and there's no problem. You know, as soon as they see any, uh, uh, as soon as they see any opposition, any counter argument coming from the, the the East or from you know from Russia or wherever, uh-huh. they immediately yeah fire up a blog. And well, this is the remarkable thing about it. Charles will be accused of being a paid friend of propagandists, ridiculous, simply because he's coming. You know, he's there and he's saying things that run totally different to what these guys on the other side are saying. The thing is, the guys on the other side, they're not going to find a smoking gun connection to George Soros, necessarily. They're simply brought up, they went to a school that had a system change before they were born. Mm-hmm. They were born into a new system, and it's all they know. So in a sense, it's just as ridiculous to say both sides are paying this. Mm-hmm. Because that takes us back to times of clear, blatant Pravda, Nazi Party, or whichever uh, silly fascist regime or totalitarian regime you want to say. Look, it's obvious that this stuff's propaganda. We live in times that are a lot more. I mean, the lies exposed in the West, and we do rightfully call it propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But do you think people really believe it? They, they live, they're like fish in water. Mm-hmm. They don't, when you say to them, but you have a kind of a Western liturgy, you can even try and define it for them. They look at you like, what are you talking about? Yeah. 
just let me stop there. Some people are saying that the audio uh, is pretty bad. I wonder if we shouldn't just try and um, hang up and, and hook back in uh, to uh, check if that if that helps any. So uh, maybe our uh, our sound technician would uh, play something nice just for thirty seconds or so until we. Uh, um, Let's call it a commercial break. Yeah, having a commercial break. Right. 
or he could have been, you know, taken out by a Kremlin coup backed by the CIA. Oh, my God. Or he could just be taking a bit of downtime, you know, getting some proper work in other than going around the world shaking hands and doing deals. He might be doing some, some kind of study, studying the, the situation that's confronting him and the other people in the Russian government in terms of what's going on in the world and what to do about it, how to restore balance, bring balance back to the force. Uh, now and again, you need some downtime, uh, some time away in your study to kind of like really, really consider uh, that problem and what to do about it and what steps to take next. The people are just, it's funny that people are shocked or amazed that he would be disappeared for, you know, a week or 10 days or something, you know, because they're so used to uh, puppetry in the West, which is always on presidents and PMs who are always around just shoving their face on, on, on television programs and, and, and talking nonsense, basically, keeping the masses happy and placated and safe in the knowledge that their great leader is there always, you know, looking out for them type thing. Well, um, their day... Their agenda for the day is basically written for them and it's packed with photo ops, right. with visiting dignitaries, interviews with the media, shake a hand, kiss, kiss a, a baby, cheek, kiss a baby, uh, or eat a baby, sign this law, please. They have no clue. Read this. Uh, what do they, what do they call it? Teleprompter. Right. Yeah, uh, they're just spokespeople. Go to bed. George Bush, what or, do you say? He sleeps 13 hours a day and the rest is just shake yeah. hands. And, the rest is naps. Yeah, naps in between. Yeah. So... Yeah, they're, they're spokespeople, and that's what they do. They get out there and pro- catapult the propaganda, as they say. Uh, that's their job in the West. But someone like Putin is more in the line of actually, you know, a real, honest-to-God leader from way back in the old days, old-school type thing, and he actually does work, you know, proper work, real work, as in that doesn't involve him being, you know, in front of a camera all the time, which obviously can't be the work of somebody who's seriously involved in, in trying to in run a country and, you know, yeah, he, do whatever he's doing. He actually reads the reports given to him, analyzes them, makes notes, sends them back. It says, "Do some more, yeah. <laughs> whatever," and then considers where to go from there. Right. That's the actual work of someone in we expect of a leader. Right. We've got um, Kent from West Virginia on the line. Uh, he's a regular listener. Hey, Kent, how you doing? Yeah, a couple of things. Well, I can't hey, have Kent. that. So, uh, like that. They can't have a fellow like that to get his hands dirty. He's setting a bad example for everybody else. You know, he's just like uh, um, Castro down there teaching everybody how to read and giving them Medicare. These are bad examples, you know. So, exactly. Uh, yeah. A couple of things. Yeah, uh, one thing I've uh, you were talking about earlier in the show and um, about how the United States goes around and quashes democracy. Now I listen to it like a, I guess what passes an alternative radio station here in the states and. The guy, the guy that runs it was always talking about this, and it just dawned on me. There's something on the Internet called U.S. Army Training Manual Number 2000-25. U.S. Army Training Manual- And apparently this is, I don't, you know, you can judge for yourself, the authenticity, but apparently it was something that was issued to the U.S. Army in the 20s or something like that. And I guess Roosevelt withdrew it, they claim. And it goes on to this, and they're always ranting and raving in the United States about how this country is a republic, you know, you know, and, uh, and it's not a democracy. And this is what this manual draws the distinction. And this explains why all the, the, the U.S. Has, has no qualms about going around and squashing what, you know, you and everybody else think are democracies. They say, 
citizenship democracy, a government of the masses, authority derived through mass meetings. And the idea of it is it's a mobocracy. It results in demagogism, license agitation, citizenship republic, authority derived through the election by the people of public officials best suited. So you're to, you're to sue, uh, you're, you're allowed to vote for your betters who are, who are there to, uh, you know, better, best direct you of your own direction. And, um, and then it says why democracies fail. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It only exists until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse out of the public treasury. So that's why, you know, this type of thinking, although uh, still exists in the minds of, obviously, the American military, and that's why, you know, they say, um, you know, like uh, uh, Allende in Chile or, or wherever there's a democracy. Well, they voted for that, but they don't know. You know they don't know any better. That's democracy, but that fail, and we'll guarantee it'll make. We'll go in and stomp it so it does fail. So, that's, check out that um, U.S. Army Training Manual number two zero 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 two five. It's there's various things on the internet, and I presume it's authentic. You know, there's it's discussed in various sites, but uh, that that kind of that really lays out the thinking of the American military to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I uh, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 interesting because in Russia, for example, we're just speaking about Russia. Uh, it's fairly pretty much accepted officially that in Russia you have something called guided democracy or managed democracy, uh, which is a democratic government but with increased autocracy. Uh, there are elections, etc., free and fair, um, but. Uh, there, they don't really. There isn't really much scope for the uh, for the people who, who vote in those elections to uh, to change state policies, um, and it's kind of it's you know almost accepted within Russia itself even that uh, that that's the kind of democracy that they have, um, which is which is far closer to the way things, for example, happen in, in the U.S. Uh, I mean, people can vote all they want, but it's not, never going to change any policies. You know, at least in Russia, they're honest about it. But in uh, in the U.S., it's this complete illusion and dream uh, where anybody can be president, and we elect our representatives, and we can fire them, and they work for us. And people keep keep telling themselves this in in the U.S., uh, desperately holding on to that illusion as if it's ever been true. Uh, and if they would just wake up and realize that, you know. Okay, that's never really been the case where the people actually, uh, you know, had power. They were the ones who decided on every every policy or every law that may or may not be passed. Obviously, they give that power to to leaders. But even in the even in the case where they give the power to leaders, they don't have the really the 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 option to remove those leaders. You know, I mean, or to change the type of people who are governing them because the same type of people keep coming in. Um, so if Americans would just admit that to themselves and recognize that that's the way it is, uh, they'd have a far better chance maybe of, I don't know if they'd be able to change anything, but they'd be in a better place um, psychologically, I think, to at least recognize that that's, what, that's the kind of system they live under uh, and that's the way it's always been. Because then you're allowed to, you'd be able to then consider more seriously uh, the type of people that are in power, you know, and don't ever think that you're just going to be able to get rid of them or that if you get rid of them, something will change. You know, it, it, it would confront them with the with the core of the problem, 
uh, but they keep running from it into illusion of, you know, the power is in the people's hands. When it's not, it never has been. It's so childish, you know. It doesn't just even take stock of almost self-evident, you know, reality. So I don't know, yeah. You got anything else, Ken? No, that's it. I just wanted to point that out. And uh, so that explains why, you know, democracy is like freedom. You know, it's just one of those words that it means everything. To, it's a different thing in everybody. Each person's mind. So really it means, it really means very little. When anybody says freedom or democracy, I sort of um, uh, sort of tune them out. You walk away. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, thanks a lot. All right, Ken. Thanks for your call. Take care. Bye, Ken. So, here's something from Russia Insider, actually. Uh, They put up a few days ago. Um, I don't know if it was reported anywhere else, but apparently not. They had to get this from German economic news, and they translated it. Mm -hmm. Headline they gave was, Intelligence Think Tank Stratfor which is the U.S. private military intelligence, says the U.S. is using Ukraine to weaken Russia's position in the Middle East. And it goes on, the conflict was sparked by the U.S. in response to Russia's activities in the Middle East. They didn't explicitly say that, but they did strongly suggest it. Um, Washington was unhappy with Moscow's role in the Syrian conflict, which you remember back in 2013, they more or less nipped in the bud by um, stepping in and sort of being the uh, the patron of, if you like, it's not a patron, but the the arbiter of the dismantlement of serious chemical weapons, whether they had an arsenal or not. Right. Well, that was the cover story to a certain extent. I mean, okay, and they it may have been the cover story. I mean, and that was the, the deal that was worked out, but. Um, if you got, go ahead, I don't want to interrupt you. Have you got more on that? or I just yeah, wanted yeah. to go off on that point you just made, can I? Yeah, go on. Because uh, there's a story going around that has been going around since then that at that point in time, we're talking September 2003 here when, I mean, I remember quite clearly, sorry, September 2013, uh, I remember quite clearly when you had uh, John Kerry and various other talking psycho heads from the U.S. Uh, ramping up the war rhetoric that, rhetoric that they were going to have a NATO bombardment of Syria and it was really getting to the point where you could tell by the things they were saying that they were going to uh, bomb, uh, do a Libya basically on on Syria and decapitate the regime as they say euphemistically. Um, And then all of a sudden from one day to the next almost, Kerry backs down and you had this vote in Parliament and the British Parliament were the majority of uh, MPs in the British Parliament voted against um, any attack on Syria, and it was an amazing turnaround. And, and I don't know. I mean, and I don't. I tend to not believe that all it was was Russia saying, "Hey, if um, chemical weapons is your problem, we can we can get rid of those for you. We can have, we can you know in, in, a, in a proper way and an official way, we'll manage the uh, removal of these." Um, weapons of mass destruction from Syria in a transparent way so that everybody can see it because that's clearly what oh, the only thing you're interested in, right, Mr. Kerry? Secretary Kerry? 
you, you, I mean, you're saying that Assad has may have has used chemical weapons and has chemical weapons, and this is terrible. And um, I mean, obviously, that's your real reason about wanting to bomb Syria, right? That's the only reason you want to bomb Syria, right? I mean, that's the only reason you went into Iraq, right? Because of the weapons of mass destruction, right? Everybody yeah. knows that. So I'm being facetious here, obviously. It's a ridiculous proposition. Yeah. That, uh, but so uh, what I'm saying is I don't think that Russia offering that, offering to do that would have resulted in the backdown that we see, that we saw in 2013. The Americans would have said, we can't do business with Russia there. Not trustworthy. They could have easily batted away that offer because that well, that's what it was, an offer. Mm-hmm. They, had, they were under no obligation to accept that offer. Well, if they, if they had, if the whole priming and they were about to, you know, hmm. launch the fighter jet. Right. But if the whole thing was geared around this alleged attack in Damascus or near Damascus, and then Russia stepping in, based using their narrative, it might have been enough to sabotage at least that narrative. But, but it was behind closed doors. I mean, there was no reason to go public with it. They could have just said no. Okay. And do their do their bombing. I mean, they don't ramp up. I mean, I don't see what pressure that would have been put on them because obviously I'm dismissing the idea that they genuinely, their only reason for wanting to bomb Syria was to get rid of the chemical weapons. They don't care about those chemical weapons. Right? It's the same as in Iraq. Yeah, they yeah. said, we, we need to go to Iraq because of Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. They made up an entire fantasy to justify that. Saddam can bomb us with his chemical weapons in 45 minutes. Yeah. It was bullshit. They obviously have another agenda, so the same applies here. They're just using the chemical weapons story mm. as a rationale for bombing so Syria for other reasons. what so, do you think Russia... Well, it seems to me have? that there was something else happening, that, that they, they, Russia did something that made it clear that this was an extremely dangerous proposition, that they would be starting a... A proxy war between well, them. A war, Russia or a real war, because if you look at the time, if you go back and look at the time, there were... A lot of reports about the, I mean, obviously they were gearing up for this bombing campaign and they had various uh, U, uh, U.S. Navy ships off the coast of Syria. Uh, apparently they had some uh, British and U.S. Uh, submarines as well. They were planning for a, a sustained kind of Tomahawk cruise missile and they had a U.S. They had a, an aircraft carrier in the area as well or coming to the area at the time. But the thing is, if you if you look at the reports, there was also about five or six Russian Navy um, ships in that area and off the coast of Syria, or off well, off the coast of Syria, off the coast of uh, Lebanon, at the same time. Yeah, I remember. I think someone test fired a missile in the Eastern Med. Right, there was a report of two missiles I yeah. think being fired, and then but they didn't go anywhere. So all of this was put together as a, a scenario around this was was put together. Um, that, you know, that was somebody fired a couple of missiles up the Mediterranean towards Russia and or towards Syria and um, and the, the Russians used, kinda, you know, radar jamming or GPS jamming or whatever it is uh, that uh, that sank them. You know, the point being, some, in some way or other they conveyed to the, to the warmongers, to NATO, that mm. if they were going to try and have another Libya-type type, uh, bombing campaign, you know, months-long bombing campaign against Syria, it wasn't going to go as easily as, as Libya, for example. It was going, the Russians were, were, could do enough 
passively mm. to make it very difficult for them. Uh, and there was also obviously a threat as well that it could very easily escalate into what well, somebody hits a Russian ship. You know, yeah. well, we've got the Russian ships off the coast, uh, off the coast of Syria. There's um, and there's uh, American ships off the coast of Syria. And like, what they're going to fire their atomic missiles over, um, over the heads of the Russians type thing. You know, I mean, I think that that's what they did. They basically just stood in the way, stood in the doorway, and said, "You have to come through me." To, some, to a certain extent. Right. That would have so, made clear. So push me out of the way. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, just side note, um, Libya, Russia, Libya was the only intervention of all of these Middle Eastern ones since 9-11 where Russia, where it got a flying colors in the, US, in the UN Security Council. The only one that actually got a Security Council resolution. So then at the time was President was Medvedev and whether it was his decision or some other reason, the Russians went with it. And them and China both approved action in airstrikes against Libya in mm-hmm. 2011. Mm-hmm. Although Putin well, then went on the record. But it wasn't airstrikes. It wasn't tabled as airstrikes. It was tabled as a no, creating a no-fly no zone. Right. And I mean, they bombed the crap out of Libya, Libya under, the, under the excuse or the aegis of a no-fly, creating a no-fly zone. That means you shoot down uh, Libyan aircraft. That are shooting civilians that's, equipped. Well, that's it. Yeah. But there were no Libyan aircraft in the air. And they went ahead and bombed the infrastructure in several places, uh, Syria being one place. Okay. Uh, so it turned it. It was both. I mean, they're liars, you know. They just yeah. Uh, now, come back to the Syrian chemical weapons charade in August 2013. September then is definitively neuter, as you just described. The next month, not November, it was actually in October 2013, when Euromaidan was kicked off. Uh, I know that because I happened across it this week. I saw photos of the official launch party of the Euromaidan. It was indoors. It wasn't like there were no crowds protesting yet, but it was an actual launch of a basically a PR campaign. And they brought over the head, then head of the U.S. Uh, Congress, Senate Arms Commission Committee, um, Senator Inhofe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's, this is the guy who was out there, in quotes, protesting global warming nonsense by throwing a snowball on the Congress floor. And people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, good for him. Good for him. He's against global warming. He didn't really say anything. Mm-hmm. We didn't make it clear one way or another where he stands on this issue. But that's Inhofe. And he was brought in for Out of Boys and the, the drinks and launch party of Maidan in October. That's just one month after the Syrian issue. Well, yeah. So, I mean. So, this fits in with the Stratfor report this week where they more or less both gloat or just matter-of-factly state that Ukraine was to get back and to give Russia something to think about. Why? Because U.S. interests exist in the Middle East. There can be no one else's interest in the Middle East. Yeah. And this comes back to what we've been saying for weeks. And I know it's hard in a way for people to get their hands around because it's like too grotesque or whatever, but they are setting the Middle East on fire so Russia and no one else can have it. It's right. ours. Belongs right. to us. Exactly. I mean, everybody knows the that kind of a a concept that I've heard of, uh, referred to, or were the idea of well, if I can't have it, nobody can. You know, um, you know, like a house or something that's disputed by two family members, and you know. One of them is trying to hold on to it, and when they, it seems like the other one's getting it, the first one goes and burns it down, you know, and says, if I can't have it myself, 
you know, I'm not willing to share. And if I can't have it all, then nobody's getting it. And I'm going to burn it down. And that's what that's what they're doing. They, they their, their last desperate move uh, to prevent effectively a rebalancing of of power in the world is to just set on fire. If if we if, if it looks like we're losing out, um, then just burn it. It's the Samson option. It's Israel's kind of Samson Samson option. You know that was touted back in the 80s that if Israel ever thought it was going to be its existence was in peril, that it would take down Europe with it. You know, if, if the West turned on Israel and let some other Middle Eastern country, you know, bomb it or something like that, they would, as a last measure, they would fire their missiles not only at their Middle Eastern enemy, but at as many people in Europe as well. Because they're, they're, you know, they're psychologically disturbed, these, these politicians. You know, there's something wrong with them, you know. And this is the ideology. And this is what's happening on a global scale, you know. Um, the, the U.S., the Anglo-American empire builders that have reigned supreme for so long are seeing the writing on the wall. They're seeing a, a new burgeoning kind of a political and economic system spearheaded by Russia and China and uh, other BRICS countries. And there's nothing they can do about it because those countries, particularly Russia and China, are smart enough to have protected themselves against anything that the Anglo-American Empire can throw at them and, and survive and keep pushing forward with their plans to rebalance the world, essentially. And the U.S., the, American, the Americans are getting increasingly frustrated and paranoid and you see this in the kind of rhetoric and lies and propaganda that they spread. I mean, we've all been laughing for the past year at <clears throat> the kind of things that have come out of the Western, Western government and Western media about Russia, you know. Putin ate my baby, you know. It's almost as bad as that, you know. I mean, when MH17 went, was, was shot down, <clears throat> the British newspapers had headlines like that in big black bold type of, Putin killed my children. Uh, or something even worse than that, you know. I mean... Uh, and it's ridiculous, you know. And they were coming out with these a few hours after the, the plane went down, before anybody could possibly know. But so, I, I mean, that's pure desperation, you know. When you have to resort to that level of, I mean, you know, black propaganda has always been a part of politics and you know geopolitics and all that kind of stuff and the squabbles, squabbles between countries. But usually, it's quite subtle, and they leak things out there and they cover their tracks quite well. But the gloves are off completely, and these people just are flailing and screaming and kicking and, you know, just stop Putin. We hate him, you know. Uh, and they can't take it. And uh, it seemed one of our predictions uh, for, I mean, other people have predicted this, going back maybe three, four years, every year, there have been various economic, uh, alternative economic uh, analysts and stuff who are saying that the, the economy is going to crash, or they're going to crash the economy, quote-unquote, um, but it hasn't happened yet. But it seems to us that it's likely to happen at some point, uh, and it's possible uh, that it would be their kind of global uh, Samson option or, or nuclear nuclear option. Um, we're seeing the end of their reign and seeing the threat from a new economic system that would sideline the U.S. and put the power in the hands of Eurasia, essentially. Um, 
they would be willing to wreck the entire global economy to stop that from happening. And they can only hope to wreck the global economy while the dollar is still the reserve currency and while while they still have the petrodollar because that implicates pretty much everybody in the world. So by ruining the American economy, by crashing it essentially, they could strike a blow against China and Russia and a lot of other countries, most other countries. And I think they're crazy enough to do that. But I also hope that uh, Russia and China have budgeted for that eventuality, and it seems that that's what they're desperately trying to do. It's not just maybe that they, they're motivated to create the new economic system because they see the injustice of the, of the unipolar American dollar-dominated world, but that they maybe suspect that one of their U.S.'s last weapons is to deliberately crash the dollar themselves and that would have pro- would cause problems you know so it's not necessarily that the it's not that the russia and china are going to crash the dollar but they're not afraid that they would crash the dollar although that might happen but in a more gradual way uh, according to russia and china's terms but uh, they they're, precipitated they're, they're afraid that the americans will precipitate it yeah. to strike a blow against russia and china and they're crazy enough to do that i mean it's that, that's what happens so that's, you know? to use like, your analogy that's like taking Brzezinski's grand chessboard and just and wrecking, wrecking the whole thing. Yeah. It's like, you know, Brzezinski, you know, talks about this grand chessboard and it's a good analogy, you know, um, and they've been playing this grand chessboard for a long time, for 150, 200 years, particularly in the last 100 or so years, you know, the, the, the moves on the chessboard have been, have been going on. And, um, but now over in the past, just in the past, maybe 10, 15 years, the U.S. has lost a lot of pieces and uh, it's looking a few more moves down the line and they're in checkmate. But they're the kind of people who, if they were playing a real chess game and they saw that happening, they would be so incensed at the idea of losing because they're, they're the ones who win all the time. What do you mean lose? We don't lose. We're America. We're exceptional. We win every chess game. So when they see checkmate coming up, instead of suffering the ignominy of having to be checkmated, they'll just turn the table over knock all the pieces off the board, turn the table over and burn it. Say there, see, I didn't lose. You didn't checkmate me. We have to start again. <laughs> oh my and, God. And, and that's the mentality. And you yeah. can imagine some people who are crazy enough, like our schizoidal or have really severe narcissistic uh, personality issues, would do that in a chess, in a normal chess game. Well, these are the kind of people and worse that you're talking about who are in control of the grand uh, chess game. They have been for a long time, and it's going against them. And this is quite possibly what they'll do. This is their, this is their strategy, you know, wreck it. All right, it's wreck it time. Because we're not going to lose, no matter what happens. Even if it means scorched earth and building again, we'll, at least when we build again, we'll be in a better position than we are now. Okay. If we start again. Start over. Bring it all down. Crazy, crazy cycle. Uh, it makes sense, though, once you know you're dealing with some kind of psychopath. It's kind of a psychopath with some twisted kind of insight to think of that. Or maybe not. It's just a natural expression. Like you say, if you're playing chess with someone who's just he's so incensed and then he comes up with this genius idea in quotes, I know, I'll just flip the board. Yeah, it makes sense. Um... 
they had they had a bit of a bombshell dropped on them this week. I know they just buried the story, but this is just so you know since at five or six weeks, especially in the British press because it concerns three British girls. Um, we you probably have heard this. Um, three British schoolgirls, fifteen and sixteen, uh, went missing, and somehow were thought to have, in quotes, gone to Syria. Who knows how the British press discovered that? But uh, yeah, there was a big <clears throat> search for them. It was in the headlines in the UK, and oh my God, have they gone to Syria? What are they doing to our girls? These evil terrorists are recruiting them on Facebook and luring them to. It's god awful place. And this week, Turkish media dropped an absolute bombshell by releasing quite a bit of information and video evidence that the guy who met them at Istanbul airport, took them across the border into Syria, was a Canadian intelligence asset. Of course, Canadians have denied it, although they spent a day in silence. <laughs> they didn't say anything. That's how you know that, that it was an information bomb because <laughs> they didn't know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. They're massively backtracking. The timing of it is just wow because right now they're trying to pass a big anti-terrorist package of laws in Canada. But weeks have been protest planned and they're taking place today or yesterday across cities in Canada against these new terror laws. And smack in the middle of it, they've had this dumped on them. So this guy, he's legit in the sense that, yeah, his story seems to check out. He was, I think he was basically an informant. He was a victim of the bombings in Syria. He fled Syria to Jordan. And then he sought asylum in Canada. Well, so he would go, well, well, he went to the Jordan, or the Canadian embassy in Jordan. In Jordan, yeah. He said, hi, I'm from Syria. I'd like, I'd like Canadian political asylum. In Canada. Yeah. And they said, okay, well, maybe... If you do a little job for us, uh-huh. we want you to be our man who will human traffic, smuggle, smuggle people, his word, smuggle people uh, from the West, from Western countries. For example, there's three British schoolgirls who we have uh, been monitoring online who have hooked up with, <coughs> hooked up with one of our contacts, one of our uh, agents, uh, a jihadi Muslim online in the UK, and they want to go. And we want you to take those three girls, meet them in, in Istanbul off the plane, take them across the border into uh, Syria to join ISIS. That seems to be a logical explanation of what they're doing. They're not saying that. I mean, as far as it goes is that he was working for CSIS, the Canadian Intelligence Service. This is according to the, Tur- the Turkish government. But they have evidence that he was working for them and, he, and that he had... Uh, well, the first thing is that they, they have evidence that he was working for the, Tur- uh, the Canadian intelligence. Also that... But they have hard evidence, let's say... Uh, that they revealed that um, he, he did meet these three girls, uh, take them across the border and deliver them to Raqqa or uh, to oh. Syria, to ISIS. And these are three British Muslim schoolgirls, essentially, 16 years old, because um, he had uh, bus tickets in their names on him. He had their passports, copies of their passports, uh, and other documents that made it clear that he had actually met these three British girls. Now, the question then is, who is this guy that's taken Western girls, teenagers, into to, to give them to ISIS? Well, the Turks say that he also uh, was in direct contact with Canadian intelligence, initially in the Canadian embassy in Jordan. So that puts them right in the middle of... We're not just talking about uh, sending weapons to 
ISIS here. We're talking about sending, managing the, the movement and the uh, delivery of recruits of different types to ISIS by Western intelligence agencies. Yeah. They went to his uh, laptop given to him by CSIS, Canadian mm-hmm. Intelligence, and his phone records and files, and they found that there have been at least 17 girls from Western countries. This guy has helped his muggle after they've landed in Turkey and brought them over. Now the question is, why would Western uh, governments uh, and intelligence agencies want to deliver Western citizens, citizens of the UK or US or Canada, teenage to girls? Right. Why would they want to deliver them to ISIS? What's their What's their policy there? Well, this is part of creating the facts on the ground that there's an absolute monster rampaging around the Middle East and now in Libya and Northern Africa and now in Nigeria and across Africa and now in Central Asia. It'll, they'll just spread it wherever they can. There's a monster out there and it's out to get us. Mm. We need boots on the ground. We need airstrikes now. Right, I think that's part. It, it, the high octane, think of it, teenage girls. And there's well, been so many stories. Yeah, because one of the old... Uh, one of the old um, complaints about from well from people of any country about immigrants is that they're taking our jobs and they're taking our women right right that's why you get racist about these people you know that aren't from where you're from people that come into your country they're taking our jobs and taking our women ISIS can't exactly take British jobs for example but apparently it's easy enough to create the appearance that they're taking (laughs) taking our women quote unquote Oh, they have more details. This is, I mean, this isn't just one. The Turks clearly are up to something because it's been a running story in Turkey all week on their news channels and various newspapers. Uh, in one news channel, A. Haber, they reported that um, this guy, Mehmed Rashid is his name. He used to be a doctor. I mean, just like the guy. God knows what his story is. He was a doctor in Syria before all this blew up. Um, they said that he was uh, he had contacted a Canadian embassy official in Jordan called Matt, who Turkish police sources say he was likely an employee of British intelligence service. So the Brits are directly involved in the specific smuggling of these three girls who for the last month people in Britain have heard nothing about but oh my god, those evil people have kidnapped our girls. Very likely, they were lured by, as part of the program, part of a British intelligence joint Canadian operation. Right, and there's there's more there's more details here just from um, a couple, load of details. A couple of days ago. Uh, this is in the Globe and Mail, my mainstream Canadian newspaper, that states that the Canadian embassy in Jordan, where Stephen Harper, the Canadian Prime Minister, posted the former head of the security detail as ambassador is at the center of new allegations linking Canada to a suspect arrested by Turkish authorities who is accused of helping British schoolgirls join, join the Islamic State militants in Syria. So, Mr. Harper appointed this guy, Bruno Sakomani, who is a Canadian citizen, a former RCMP officer, and the former head of the Prime Minister's security detail, uh, appointed him as ambassador Canadian ambassador to Jordan and he is now being directly linked to this guy this Syrian guy who took these three girls across the border. Now for them to turn around and say 
we knew nothing about this and we our hands are clean and this guy wasn't even an agent. We don't even know him. It's ridiculous. You know, you're talking well, about the Canadian ambassador yeah. to Jordan who has a direct link, direct contact, met with this guy. And then, so he, met, he meets with them and chats with them and talks about Canadian citizenship and there's some kind of deal done, we suppose, for that. And then the next thing this guy does is go and get three British schoolgirls into, into ISIS hands. Well, theirs is the latest three, probably. Right. But, I mean, you're saying there's no connection there between those two things? Come well, they on. haven't denied it. They, what they've... The Canadian government has said he was not a CSIS employee. No, he leaves it open. No, he was employed by the Canadian embassy in, in Jordan. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing, but, you know. Uh, the Turks got, yeah, they confiscated his mobile phone or computer, which they could tell somehow that they were provided by Canadian government. Mm-hmm. Their own computer records. So they have obviously been watching this going on. I mean, it, it's complicated as to whether or not Turkish government is 100% complicit in this. There's obviously, there's a whole backstory within Turkey about a parallel government structure. We're probably looking at a mix between, basically, yeah, two governments in Turkey. One complying with this dirty game and the other maybe trying to leak some information. But anyway, they released their own computer record showing that this, this guy, Rashid, had entered Turkey 33 times with his Syrian passport since June 2013. And received multiple money wires from people in England. Yeah, bank accounts opened in the United Kingdom after. And the only thing they can say is that CSIS, the Canadian Intelligence Agency, did not send him any money. There's no evidence that they sent him any money. Yeah, that's because the Brits were sending him yeah. money and CSIS were operating him on the ground, but paying him came from the Brits. So it was a British-Canadian operation, like you said. This is, I mean, this isn't speculation, folks. This comes from uh, mainstream, like CBC News, for example, is quoting the... Turkish foreign minister uh, uh, saying that this guy, Rashid, is a Syrian national and he's working for a country in the US-led coalition fighting ISIS. Uh, he didn't elaborate further at the time, but it's now come out that that country was uh, Canada. Was Canada? But he says, he says, the person who helped the three British girls into Syria is a Syrian national working for another country within the coalition. And then he says, the situation is complicated. Yeah, down right. It's complicated. <laughs> Not so much complicated, it's probably fairly simple, but it would freak people out, is what he means, if anybody were to tell, uh, reveal the full details of the situation. People would be freaked out, so we'll just call it complicated. It's complicated. Yeah, it's a fog of war. Yeah, the fog of war is going on. So anyway, um, yeah, do we have anything else? Because I'm thinking I need, after all this, you know, horrible, nasty, duplicitous, creepy, psychopathic intel operations that have been running this world for so long, we need something that's a bit more kind of lighthearted, you know, maybe a bit of humor. I'm thinking that it's time to call in our old friend Relic to take us out. Take it away, Relic. Well, hello there. It's Relic here, coming to you again from my tiny log cabin on the northern shores of Lake Canada. I hear a lot of talk from this particular radio show about an impending ice age. Well... Round here, we just call that another Tuesday in February. 
And as you probably guessed, I'm here today to share with you all the latest celebrity pop culture gossip that I've downloaded this week from the worldwide grid. First of all, there's a very famous celebrity named Beyonce. I think she's a, a dancer or, or a singer. Anyways, Tribute Magazine is reporting that this Beyonce person has introduced a new delivery service for vegan meals, where one can order bland, nutritionless food brought right to your front door. It makes sense, I suppose. She makes music that is empty calories for your mind and serves meals that are empty calories for your body. Sounds to me like a two-for-one special. Yeah, it's no wonder all these pop stars are so skinny, eating all that rabbit food. I think what they need is to chow down on a big plate of lard with, with bacon on top and, and smothered in butter. That'll fix them. That'll fix them good. Yeah, celebrities these days, they all look like pale, wet noodles. Their pants have only one belt loop, and they probably need to wear snowshoes in the shower to, to stop from slipping down the drain. And word on the street is that children in Africa have started sending care packages for the poor, starving runway models of Louis Vitton. True story. Continuing on with Beyonce, at the Grammy Awards this year, the pop idol lost the award for Album of the Year to a nice man named Beck. When her friend and mentor, flip-flop music producer Canyon West, heard the disappointing news, he bounded up onto the stage in protest, thus making a huge ass of himself. Canyon apparently was named such on account of the vast space between his ears where his brains are supposed to be. And speaking of huge asses, apparently Mr. Canyon is married to a, a lovely young lady named Kim Kardashian, who, whose only discernible claim to fame seems to be the ability to hold a champagne glass with her buttocks. Personally, whenever I feel the need to grasp a container full of bubbly liquid, I prefer to use something called my hands. Still, with such a unique and formidable talent, I suspect that one day she has dreams of qualifying for a spot in the Special Olympics. In other news... The Guardian newspaper is reporting that Kid Rock, the redneck, right-wing, inbred, gun-toting, white trash rap star, has just become a grandfather. Well, congratulations to you, Mr. Rock. Apparently, he's been quoted as saying that the news of the birth of his first grandchild helps him keep up his street cred. Well, forgive me, dear listeners, but I didn't even know that Hillbillies had streets. Maybe he means his dirt road cred. Now, Kid Rock may sound like a pseudonym to you, but it's a little-known fact that it is actually his real given name. His parents, Ida and Harvey Rock, named him Kid on the mistaken assumption 
that he would remain a six-year-old boy for the rest of his life. And while that might be true for him intellectually and emotionally, from what I can tell, physically, he's pretty much a full-ass grown man. My suggestion for this rap star is to name the baby Grand Kid Rock. That way, the child can continue the moronic family tradition of rampant public drug use, multiple assault offenses, and making obnoxious hillbilly music, and thus avoiding the weighty burden of ever having to think for himself. What do you think, true detectives Rustin Cole? I got nothing against hillbilly. Well, that makes one of us anyway. And uh, that's all for this week, kids. Until next time, this is Relic here, throwing some more split birch into the wood stove and saying, always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. So that was uh, Relic with his pop culture roundup, very insightful as usual. Uh, you know, pulling the, the curtain back on the sort of scene that is pop culture type things in in America mainly. And connecting them dots. Connecting them dots. Um, yeah, I think we should have Relic on the show at some point. I mean, he yeah, sends really. these recordings, you know, of his musings for, for the past week or two uh, and what he's observed uh, going on uh, <laughs> on the interwebs or the grid, as he calls it. Um, but we should have him on live sometime. Yeah, so we'd be able to uh, question him about uh, just you know, you know where he comes from, where he where he gets this insight from, and uh, does he really live on the shores of Lake Canada, or is there even a Lake Canada? Uh, and where, if there is, where is it? You know, um, but those would all be interesting questions for um, for Alec, yeah, and we should have him on the show at some point, I think. But uh, yeah, so but until then, folks, I think we're going to call it uh, a night for this week. We will be back again next week with, well, we're not too sure yet. But until it'll be then, generally more of the same. More of the same. More of the same. Take care of each other and, and goodbye. Bye-bye.